Welcome to another big day of the KFR podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bowden, joined, as always, by the Tim Woods, or perhaps the Dickie Steinborn of KFR co-host, the totally original honorary Kentucky Fried Colonel himself, the man of a thousand and one nicknames, the great Brian Lass. Well, hold on now. Did you just call me a dick? I'm pretty sure you just called me a dick. (laughs) No, 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 no. Of course not. I, I, I said Dickie Steinborn. Yeah, I know. Jarrett's ringer for Mr. Wrestling. One of several guys impersonating famous masked wrestlers in Memphis, which really makes you wonder about your cherished childhood memory of Mil Moscaris. Moving in- right. Hey, whoa, whoa, moving right along. Hey, hey, speaking of memories, there was never a more memorable period of Memphis mayhem than summer 1981. I'm talking about the gang wars between Jerry Lawler and all the King's men versus Jimmy Hart's first family. Today, my co-host Howard Baum and I will finish breaking down May 1981 and explain why the funk houses stunk and how this led to broken hearts and bones, yet a dreamy summer and boffo box office for Jarrett Promotions. That's right, Scott. Today, our listeners will hear all about the bloody greatness at the gardens, the infamous Louisville brawl, which ignited the gang wars, and how two of Eddie Graham's Sunshine State mainstays turned up the heat upon their arrival in the volunteer state. And you'll hear Scott explain his man crush on the golden boy, Chick Donovan. Well, uh, well wait a minute. I, listen, I, I wouldn't call it a man crush. I mean, hey, don't I, get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I like Chick too. I think I, I, Chick... I, I, Super Chick. Super Chick. It's Super Chick. Right, right, right. Super Chick. Anyway, you sure do love you some golden boy. Must have broken your heart when he dropped that bout to newcomer Steve Kern. Oh, Brian, Brian, Brian. It was a dark, dark day indeed for the golden boy. But as a wise gentry with a big mouth often said, behind every dark cloud, there's a silver lining, baby. Today, we will explain how that devastating loss cleared the clouds hovering above Super Chick's career, turning it into a bright, sunshiny future for the golden boy. You love Super Chick. Admit it. We'll be right back with less of Brian and more of me. But first, a brilliant rendition of We Are Family. Kevin Wayne, Chicken Jimmy. What I was most interested in was not the main event, uh, but it was a match that really caught my fancy because it had two really outstanding young athletes going against each other. It was about that I absolutely was thrilled and interested to see, and that was the Steve Kern, Golden Boy Chick Donovan bout. Man, oh man, when these two young warriors tangled, well, let's take a look at some of the action as it took place. He misses a big right hand sleeper hold on Donovan. Kern very quickly went into it. Ah, and he's run into the turnbuckle. I was wondering whether he is going to make it stick. The reason being, Kern was unable to have that left leg hooked on the floor even. He was just on his tiptoe with it, and he really couldn't get the pressure on Donovan. Donovan ducked him, whammed him into the turnbuckle, goes for the figure four. Is this going to be it? Kern underneath the ring rope. Boy, that saved him. Donovan won't let it go. But he cannot get a submission out of that figure four. Because the action, officially speaking, has stopped. 
Steve Kern would deny any action stopped as Donovan was continuing to work on that figure four. Kern in trouble. And Steve Donovan, a Chick Donovan, is no guy to be in trouble with. Donovan pounding. Once again, he goes for the leg. Spins on it. And he's kicked off right into the turnbuckle. And look at his current fight back. He is a battler. Crowd loves it, too. Dusted him with that forearm. Backdrop. Into the turnbuckle. All the way up and takes him over on that monkey flip. Now he goes for the sleeper. On his knees. He may be able to get it this time. That time when Donovan took him back. Look at that. Suplex. Two, three. Got him. What a super move by Steve Kern. Donovan was going to run him into the turnbuckle again. The minute he leaned over and Kern felt his legs leave the floor, he let go of him, pushed him in there as he bounced straight back. He picked him into a suplex, slammed him back down, and got a three count before Donovan could recover. 19 minutes, 39 seconds. The winner, Steve Kern. And Boy, I tell you, I guess you gathered in there that that uh, golden boy Chick Donovan had used that move before running Kern into the turnbuckle on it. What a great move. I never thought I would see him get him and suplex him back like that. Here's the man that we were just talking about. In his own right, he had the, uh, had the nerve uh, to come out here and at least agree to talk to us about the match. Golden boy Chick Donovan. Chick, I, uh, I got to ask you, going into that match, uh, were you not feeling well when you went in there with Kern? Were you just not right and ready for the match? I have no excuses, Mr. Russell. As you saw it, the man beat me. One, two, three. There's no excuses. I have just been humiliated. Never in my life I would ever think that could ever happen to the Golden Boy. But it did. You saw it. Well, did he, uh, at some point earlier in the match, hurt you to the position where you were not able to uh, contend with him in the latter part of it? All I can say is Steve Kern is a superior well-trained athlete and he beat me you know i have been battered tattered and torn to the point where i think i'm just going to retire from professional wrestling i'm going to hang my tights in an old cold clammy closet putting my boots in an old suitcase somewhere in an attic where I'll never see them again, Mr. Russell. I'm just humiliated. This is a dark day. Excuse me. It's a dark day for me, baby. Jimmy, we already seen you out here with your belt on. I guess you're sleeping with that on. Well, you better believe I'm taking a bath with it on if you want to know the truth. Let me tell you something, Chick. And I have to be honest. For three weeks now, man, I've been sitting back and watching you on the tube. I've been watching you out here, and I think you have the best possibility of anybody I've ever seen in my life. I don't know if you know too much about my background or not, but let me tell you something, man. I handled Paul Ellering. I turned him into a champion. Killer Carl Krupp, who was a champion. 
And, of course, Jerry Lawler, who I'm very disappointed in. He's through. He's has been. But let me tell you something, man. You've got a million-dollar body. You've got a Cadillac, but nobody to drive it. I want to be that driver. But, Jimmy, I'm humiliated. Well, man, look look at you. Chick, chick, listen to me. Look at you, man. Look at you. I'm telling you, you're a champion. You're championship material, man. You're out here with your head hanging between your legs. That makes me sick. All of my life, I've had to fight for everything. Listen to me. Everything I've ever had all my life, man, I've had to fight for. I'm making you an offer right now. You sign with Tojo Yamamoto, that fat little Jap. He's washed up. He's been washed up. He's overweight and out of date and out of shape. I'm here to stay. The family is magic. You can be magic. I can put magic into you, Chip. Let me tell you something right now. You give me a chance. You sign with Jimmy Hart, and I promise you, you'll be a champion. You'll be a champion. You know, we have a philosophy in the family. I want you got to have a little rhythm, man. Look at you. You look at the way you're dressed now. Come on, we can do it. Listen at this, baby. But I listen to him. Mom, just I listen. listen to him, I know you listen to him, but don't listen to him. He's washed up. Listen, listen, to to, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen, to, listen. listen to you. Listen. We are family. Wayne, Kevin, Chicken, Jimmy. Does that sound good? Chick, hey. We are family. Sing it, baby. Kevin, Wayne, okay. Chicken, Jimmy. What do you think, baby? See, it's magic. You can do it. You can do it, baby. He's got it. Hey, you're welcome, Come on, we're going to talk. We're going to talk, you has been. You're Fine. trying to kill this guy. Will you get out of here? Now, we've had enough of you. Jimmy Hart, Chick Donovan. We're going to be back with more action coming up. The Nightmares. Steve Kern and Roy Rogers right after we take time out for this. Welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And when we left off last time, we talked about my heartbreaking experience watching the King and Jack Briscoe go down in defeat at the diabolical hands, one of which had powder in it that was tossed into the King's eyes, of the diabolical Funk Brothers, Terry and Dory Jr. And if my name was Dory Jr., I'd be pretty pissed off too. But uh, at any rate... Uh, let's turn our eyes to the following week, May 25th, 1981. Uh, one notable newcomer debuts, uh, Chick Donovan defeats Eddie Gilbert. Uh, Chick Donovan is one of those guys who's kind of a journeyman. But again, Jerry Jarrett has a way of finding somebody. And, you know, I think uh, Chick had been on uh, had been doing jobs on TBS at this point. Uh, guys, guys seemed to have everything, but he had like this, this, this big hook nose and, but the awkwardness of it made him a great heel. He had a really awkward delivery, but there was something about that guy that I thought was special. And I guess Jerry Jarrett did too. Uh, another key thing on this card, Kevin Sullivan and Wayne Ferris beat Bill Dundee and the dream machine to win the Southern tag titles. Now, uh, Kevin Sullivan was called in for special duty by the king himself, Jerry Lawler. He said that uh, he needed the dirtiest player in the game, and I'm not talking about Ric Flair. And at that point, Kevin Sullivan had been one of the hottest heels on WTBS, uh, on Georgia Championship Wrestling, actually in a feud with Steve Kern. Now, both Kern and Sullivan cut their teeth, among other things, learning the ring ropes in the Sunshine State. So who better... To talk about those guys, that my co-host, Mr. Sunshine himself, Howard Baum. Howard, welcome to hey. welcome back to KFR, buddy. There's a tag that'll stick. And by the way, a brave choice, Scott. Most <laughs> broadcasters would be afraid to bore their audience to that degree right at the top of a show, but 
Well, it's just, they don't have the courage of a Scott. Yeah, the, they don't the, have the courage of a Scott Bowden. Thank you so a, much, everybody. This is pleasure as always to be here for this auspicious, <laughs> the rebooted KFR with a rejuvenated Howard Baum. So let's get down to it. <laughs> I did took my down home pill did, tonight. Did, did, did somebody give you a note? Energy before you came uh, <laughs> Well, oh my gosh. Brian said one of us had to have some. So oh, I, I'm I just, figured I would try. I'm like I'm like Sam Muchnick, baby. I'm old school. I believe like like a slow build. You start out with like a ten minute draw, and then you build and you build. I'm like Johnny Valentine. You know, just working <laughs> one hold, and then I go, and then I climax really big, kind of like you did at the CAC. But anyway, <laughs> moving, right, moving, moving right along, and just really quickly to wrap up the May twenty fifth, nineteen eighty one card, Jerry Lawler pinned. Terry Funk, finally. And you have to say, you know, after after everything that they had put in this, all the time and effort, the empty arena match, all the blood that was spilled, this show drew about 5,500 fans. And that really is the absolute shits for a lineup like this uh, back in those days for Memphis. So what do they do? They hit the reset button. The very next night in Louisville, Kentucky, at the Louisville Gardens, they shoot. Amy, Jim Cornette was there, said it was the craziest, wildest brawl he had ever seen. And it's actually shot up from like uh, the, the balcony. Uh, yeah. Clearly, they knew they were setting something up. It was a tag match between uh, Bill Dundee and the Dream Machine. And it's funny how like everyone's calling, you know, referencing the dream, the dream, and you and you think of you're thinking of Dusty Rhodes, right? The way they would would call uh, Dusty the dream in Florida. Well, I'm not going to say that that Troy was right there at that level, but he was pretty damn popular at this point, and he was over. And in this match, Sullivan and Ferris have uh, Dundee and the Dream on the ropes, and. I always, I've always said that Dundee is right there with Ricky Steamboat when it comes to selling. This is some of the most realistic selling you'll ever see, and it looked like, really, that Sullivan and Ferris were working pretty damn snug. And they've already got the dream. His mask is, is like, torn half off, busted up. He's You know, he was bleeding through the mask, and now he's got to kind of rip his mask open to even see as the blood is caking over his eyes and Lance Russell is on the call. It's absolutely perfect. It's everything that it should be. Uh, it spills out, you know, it, it, right when Dundee starts making a comeback, Jimmy Hart comes in with the fucking cane and nails him. And this place is going ballistic. I mean, there are about 5,500 people at the Louisville gardens. They're making more noise than 30,000, 50,000 people at WrestleMania, easily. Uh, Howard, do you remember seeing this angle for the first time? I just uh, rewatched this angle, and it was it really took me back to how much fun and how exciting wrestling actually used to be. And I can only imagine a cool building like the Louisville Gardens back in the day. What added to the vibe of that particular um, brawl, which spilled everywhere in the building, Lawler did his famous tumble down the bleachers. Yeah. Giant yeah. bump that he took yeah. out of mothballs. Well, and you know, they had those giant, like, you know, each step was like the size of two steps and Lawler went down at least 16 of them. Well, in, in like one spot. Lawler, and of Lawler, course today yeah. people would have his head because he got up from that and started punching, um, uh, whoever the opponent was. Yeah, but, but he's Lawler, let, me just say this, let me just say this. Cause I just saw it. It's fresh in my head. 
What really added to it was the cool double ring ambience, the graininess of the footage, the lighting of the building, the fans going nuts, as you say. But let me point this out to all you young workers out there. And there's a shocking amount of you, I've found out. Um, is that everybody was selling during this brawl in character, if you can even wrap your mind around that. When Jimmy Hart took a bump off a, uh, off a Bill Dundee punch on the concrete floor, he did it as Jimmy Hart. When the Nightmares took a bump off a Lawler thing, they did it as the Nightmares. Like Everyone had an individual personality as to how they sold and reacted to what was going on around them. And it wasn't just rote moves. Like, this is what I do at this point in the match. That's what they do individually. And now I defer back to you, Mr. Memphis. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned that that big uh, stairwell bump. And Lawler had not had not pulled that. You know, Lawler was just crazy with the bumps in 74, 75, 76. And then, you know, I, he probably he probably smartened up a little bit. and <laughs> probably realized. Yeah, uh, that was that a he, high standard to maintain because he uh, took some well, of the yeah. most death-defying bumps of all time. And you I think what? Cornette goes on record as saying that he's the biggest bump man of all time. And I would have to really agree with that. Well, he, and, yeah, he, he, hang on a second. He, he really, he really slowed it down at, when he came back from the broken leg, and and wisely so, you know. Uh, and from what I understand from from Kevin Lawler, uh, even though you know he was cleared to wrestle, you know he would have he was due to come back in September of 1980, and then he did that stupid cast cast match and rebroke the leg. Uh, and, and, you know, it cost him another three months or so, but it almost worked again. It almost worked out because it, in re in retelling the legend of it and looking back on it and the way they sold that December 29th, 1980 bout at the mid South Coliseum that I was lucky enough to get tickets in in the nosebleed section. It had to be that. Thing. I love how these dates are just on the tip of his tongue. Isn't that amazing, <laughs> folks? That is some real Rain Man action if I've ever seen anything like it. It was 8:42 when oh. Jerry Briscoe came to town on a rainy winter's eve. <laughs> I remember they were out of mustard. A woman at the right. named Martha. She gave me a the big of her private condiment stash. crisis at the mid-south. I, I remember that well. And I did say private stash, not private snatch. Although that sounds like a Vince Russo character. And now he did say it. Private snatch. <laughs> this thing's never going to fly. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> and again, it's, but, you know, Lawler really toned things down after the broken leg, used more psychology, uh, and really until he was back up to speed because uh, Kevin said he was still hurting. You know, that, that leg was still pretty tender for the first few months of yeah. 1981. But, man, it seemed like in the, by the summer – it, you know, he really was back to being the old king. It looked like he, he had dropped some weight. He was working a regular schedule. He was working dates in Florida as well, which is why he was not in the studio as much uh, during the summer. But the, the to me, this this whole angle to kickstart, and there is no coincidence, folks, that this angle was timed right when school let out. Because, I mean, I'm t the houses were usually down, and that may have been one reason why the matches with the Funks didn't draw as well. But, I, but I, you know, Jared just has a, has a way of getting the most out of local hand-picked talent that, is, that has been underutilized elsewhere and giving them a chance to shine. And it may be some 
psychological where these guys realize it's their big break. It's their chance to make some big money. And in 1981, I don't care what anybody says about the payoffs. If you work that summer in 1981 and you were mid-card or above, or if you were lucky enough to be in on that main event gang war, as that has that summer is referred to, you were making some serious cash. Uh, Howard, Howard knows nothing about making serious cash. <laughs> thank you for picking, but, thank you for choosing to pause at the one time where I had absolutely nothing to say in the history of broadcasting. Howard, knows, appreciate Howard, that. Howard knows nothing about making serious cash. Uh, right? tremendous. <laughs> so he remains silent. Anyway, uh, uh, but this was. I haven't seen uh, that kind of chemistry since the old Letterman Kaufman days. Uh, but, uh, this, but this, seriously, this, this was the, the beginning of the gang war. Uh, and I hate to almost use that term living in, in Southern California, but, uh, but that's really what it was that, that I, I point to 1981 as having the best TV ever for Memphis. And that covers a hell of a lot of ground for an episodic show like that, that ran every week at the mid South Coliseum, this section that we're, that we're starting to cover, uh, really starting with, uh, I believe it was the, the May 30th, uh, Saturday Memphis show. Now, this will be numbered incorrectly. If you try to find it on YouTube, it'll probably be uh, dated June 6th. But, you know, Louisville was always a week behind. So uh, keep that in mind if you try to find uh, the footage. Um, and that and that show kicks off, you know, with Lance just going right at the top, stressing the importance of all this. As they're running down the card, they say, you know, this is the wildest thing I've ever seen. And the thing about it is, Jerry Jarrett always told Lance and Dave, don't, you know, unless you really mean it, don't say it. So Lance, you know how many crazy brawls that he saw over the years in Memphis? He rarely pulled anything like that out, like the wildest or the best or the greatest. I mean, it was reserved for moments like this, and it was very appropriate. And just the brilliant camera angle. I'd never seen that camera angle before. And just, you know, to see the guy just when Lawler came out, that's when it just crescendoed. You know, it's like the Mm -hmm. crowd was on the edge of their seats anyway. And really, even before it breaks out and it's still just a regular tag match, right, with uh, Sullivan and Ferris, who really made a great combination uh, and the dream and Dundee, even before all hell breaks loose. I want you to listen to the fan reaction as they are stomping their feet and trying to rally a Dundee looks like Rocky Balboa in the 14th round uh, against Apollo Creed. I mean, it, it's it's some brilliant selling. It doesn't hurt Dundee at all because he's the ultimate underdog. And even he even dry. I love how what you know Dundee's big finishing move back then was when uh, an opponent had him in trouble and threw him into the turnbuckle, and he came back with that flying press. But even that doesn't work because Sullivan kicks out. Right. Uh, that was a beautiful false finish. Uh, that sets up Jimmy Hart's spot to come in and just clock Dundee with the cane. It's it, I'm a, I'm almost surprised that a riot didn't didn't break out when when Hart came in there, and maybe it would have if uh, if Lawler hadn't come in there to 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 save the day. Right, right, because it was so different back then. Everybody was so invested in it, and it's just really hard to even relate to from a modern state of mind. But anybody who was in like an arena atmosphere back then realizes like how crazy it got like there there was not this is without exaggeration there was not one show i ever went to from the time i was a kid in 1975 all the way through um that by the end of the night 
the bloody match to end the end of the night, the Texas death match, whatever it may be, or the world title match at Miami beach convention center, people were going ape shit wild in the stands, in the seats. I'm trying to take photos and half the time I couldn't because just everybody, it was, it was an inch away from a riot. And if the wrong thing would have happened, it would have been a riot. Yeah. And, um, it was just like a bloodthirsty crowd. That it started so innocently at the beginning of the match. Scott McGee is working Gordon Nelson, and like people are trickling in. And by the end of the night, people are literally on chairs in the 70s with weapons, with Sansa belts, looking for blood. And if it didn't end the right way, and God help the heels walking back to the dressing room and stuff, for all intents and purposes, it was real back then. And you can only, you know, like I can only imagine what the vibe was like in Memphis because. Uh, oh, crazy well, enough. Well, I mean, I the think, things were. I mean, I Miami, fans, I mean, I Memphis fans, is a whole different world. I think the fans were a little dirtier in, in, in Florida. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Where do you get that from? I'm just saying. I mean, not that we had a lot of doctors in the front row or anything like that. <laughs> doctors. I mean, I mean that's what I think of. <laughs> ah, that's what I think of when I think of the Memphis front row. But hey, if I can hijack the show and digress for a few weeks and go back to May second, nineteen eighty-one, because I took some hilarious notes on a batch of videos that I was instructed to watch leading up to this uh, gang war, as you call it. And I took some notes that I think bear pointing out, such as, do you remember when Jerry Blackwell came in, I think is a stopgap. He wasn't there for very long. They were trying to put him over with some AWA videos, right? All these feats of strength, like he's Joe LaDuke. And you know what note I made on my pad here? Looks like a stuffed Blinza. (laughs) Is it Blintz or Blintza? I'm going to say both, and you can put the best one in, Lou. After yeah. we look at, after we check with the kosher Perev Rabbi, yes. I know nearly so nearly Shockett is popping for that one somewhere in Maryland. Uh, well, and, yeah, and those, Black, Jerry Black, video, Black, those Jerry Blackwell, Blackwell videos, he looked like a stuffed Blintz. Well, I think and Blintz Black- is funnier. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry, I'm done. Well, and Blackwell, well, Blackwell came in as a. It was supposed to be like he was a friend to Terry Fox. Now, so you know, you can imagine like uh, the Funk sitting around over a barbecue at the Double Cross Ranch with uh, Jerry Blackwell and him cleaning. Right, him out. right. So, and really, and he, when you think of Terry Funk, you know, you always <laughs> think of Crusher Blackwell right next to him. But also, really interesting during this time. Um, is Tojo is managing Onita and Fuji, which last week you recognized as one of your favorite teams. Absolutely. And uh, I remember, you know, we're talking before the show, uh, talking with Lou and and each other, and talking about how the if you didn't get the Memphis feed and you were in some different towns, you almost got more of a treat because Lance would hold these interviews and sometimes Dave and sometimes somebody else, but usually Lance, if I'm not mistaken, and it would be the black curtain interviews for all the different markets. So it would be for Nashville or Louisville. And half the time in these interviews, everyone's exhausted or they're like ready to make the next town or it's before the show and they're hung over or whatever. You could tell that guys are dragging in a lot of these, but they, st- they try to be in character. So Jimmy Hart is like all dejected and tired, but he's trying to be Jimmy Hart. And so anyway, one of the funnier ones I wrote down from this is uh, Tojo, Onita, and Fuji are out there during one of these Black Curtain interviews. And at the end of it, Tojo goes, my boys say they're going to drop a bomb on them. Talking about uh, Dundee and uh, it was the three Ds. So I guess it was Dundee, Dream, and who was the other one? Dutch? Yeah, there you go. There you go. The three so, Ds? Interesting... What? <laughs> I don't remember that. I don't remember that. 
Like, oh, that wasn't like an official name or anything. Cue, cue the next. Uh, <laughs> are, are you just? I did that so I. I don't know if I did that so I could remember it or if it's something Lance said. Like, oh, you got the three D's in there. No, such no. dream and the. All right. Well, now I'm gonna rewatch it because I don't know if I'm losing my mind or what. Or maybe but you were thinking. Of, maybe is, maybe you think maybe you were thinking about your chick at the CAC Triple D. And I was gonna say <laughs> countdown to Travis's tasteless <laughs> CAC joke of the of the week. Okay. Uh, so the gift, during this the time, what's really interesting is that FMW, for all intents and purposes, is born because guess who was there a few weeks later to witness that giant brawl, patented Memphis style violence that years later became FMW, Onita, and there you go. Yeah, well, and they participated in the the second, or well, was wait a minute, the third. Or, I can't remember. It's like a trilogy. One of, of the original, yes. What one of the concession stand brawls with Eddie Gilbert? One of the crucial and, and, ones. One yes. of the better ones. More one yeah. of the more violent ones because of Tojo. Remember yeah. the yeah. mustard flying around and yes. stuff. The well, mustard slaps. jar in particular always got me. I forget where it landed, but it was like he heaved it at somebody. Somebody heaved it at somebody, and I'm thinking, oh my god. Because they literally didn't try to work it. They didn't try to miss. They just heaved it at somebody. It didn't hit anyone in the head or anything. But that was when I first broke in and people were showing me Memphis videos. That was like one of the crucial ones. And some people will put that one up there as the best of the concession stand brawls. Yes, it it, it may very well be the godfather, too, of concession stand brawls. Uh, and, and highlighted by a mustard-covered bullet-headed Tojo, he's got it's a combination. It's a combination of blood and mustard, and yeah. nobody, nobody has smartened up. Or the uh, the uh, the wife of the uh, the concession stand owner, right? Right. And he told he told me he's like, look, everything's cool. You guys can do this again, but just just don't break the popcorn machine because apparently that was really expensive. So when they got near that popcorn machine, that woman goes after Tojo and he slaps <laughs> the shit out of her. And the yeah, husband, yeah. And the husband's over there laughing. Oh my god! And Jerry Jarrett said he went over there and goes, don't laugh. This guy just slapped your wife. Jesus Christ. And, oh uh, my God! You yeah. could tell it was pretty stiff. It was like it was like little stiff chop-like motions. Remember, remember that? Yeah, yeah. That and was the, something. I mean, that was that was the. If you think about it, arguably that was the realest brawl in the history of wrestling. As I sit here and say it, you know what? And if you could show me a more realistic, you know, Memphis seventies, eighties, Florida, Texas-style brawl. What was more realistic than that? The townsfolk mixing in at the concession stand with the Japanese invaders and the yeah. local young guys oh, the, going it, hog it, wild. And it was it was just perfect because it was you know the Japanese contingent against man. You can't get any at that at that time. All right. American boys and guys right. and guys who the fans had seen grow up around, literally around the ring right. because, you know, Eddie and Ricky both helped set up the ring. Uh, Ricky was going. We had military overtones of like USA versus Japan without even having to come out and say it. Well, and they did come out and say it. They did come out and say it. But they didn't even need to. I mean, just the, just the freaking visual, right? It literally uh, looked like a war. It literally looked like a war. It, I, it was a... It, uh, People felt differently about Morton and uh, and Gilbert after that. They they got over on yes. the, on another level uh, after that brawl. It's almost like they went in there as 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 boys and and came out as men. Uh, and and they had scored the the upset. They were getting like punished, right? 
uh, by Anita Fuji. And then they did that nice little spot where I believe one of them was body slamming Ricky and Eddie hits a drop kick and uh, right. falls on top, which I believe, I believe the rock and roll used at a finish at Starcade maybe over the Andersons, if I'm not mistaken, in the cage match. But I, I could be wrong. But it's kind of funny how all these Memphis finishes you would see get recycled years later. Uh, yeah. pay-per-view events uh, so clearly people were were taking notes of these wonderful well, they were finishes. very innovative you know it yeah was very, you know and that's a, that's one area that i don't think memphis gets any respect for is the innovative tag team division because really think about it nightmares rock and roll express fabulous ones but not just the fact that they were all great teams think of the innov- innovativeness is that a word doesn't sound right right now, but I'm going to go with it. Well, think of the way, innovation. Okay, in a, but think in a way, about in a way, the in a way okay. that's ironic because you're coming up with a new word. Oh, well, there you go. Doesn't it always work out that way? But I think, think, think about it. I think the, the foundations of the Midnight Express all came out of Memphis. Rock and Roll Express, fabulous ones. All these teams that excelled in that, which what really was revolutionary style teamwork at that time. Well, and um, and even the earliest incarnations of the Midnight Express, which was Randy Rose, Norvell Austin, and those guys were still innovative for their time. And people who are from there still talk about them in reverent tones. Well, and I I do have to mention too, uh, you know, we talk about Condry being a part of the original Midnight Express and they debut later in the year in Memphis. I mean, a lot of talent coming through uh, in 1981. Apparently the word had gotten out that the payoffs were good and business was red hot. Uh, but if you go back to 1980, I mean, Schultz and Condry were pulling off Midnight Express moves. So that leads me to believe uh, that Condry was, you know, even though Bob Eaton, incredible worker, right? Uh, but that leads me to believe that the, perhaps Condry was the one who maybe developed or had the idea, you know, why don't we look, you know, for a tag team or we're in the same outfits and everything, why don't we take it one step further and do these well-timed double team moves? You know, it used to be right. a, double, a double team move would be like, you know, just holding a guy and just continuing to punch him or whatever and, and doing it illegally. Uh, the way they were doing things, it, it was, uh, you know, like David Schultz would have a guy like a leg grapevine and Schultz would come over and body press him, you know, and, 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 uh, or would come over and body pressing, you know, which would make it give it more impact when Schultz went back with the leg. They were doing all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, unfortunately, that tag team See, didn't last, but that was sort of a that was one of the earliest memories of, that I can see of a tag team really gelling and doing those kind of uh, synchronized moves. Yeah, and that's I really think Memphis deserves the credit for that, um, for putting that kind of innovative tag team wrestling on the map as a legit art form in professional wrestling. Cause really think about it. What other territory developed as much tag team talent and that, you know, that cute, that I don't want to say cutesy, but that kind of, what would you call those kind of moves that the midnight express ended up doing? Like the, they were really fluid synchronized, uh, tag team maneuvers, just really cool combinations that look like they hurt, but were also cool looking at the time. Yeah, it looked it looked it, it. Well, it just looked like that they were like a, a well-oiled machine, right? Just totally in sync. Uh, right. Totally, and it looked, you know, they always like to say, you know, it's like they could read each other's minds, you know, uh, not knowing that, that, you know, they're actually calling yeah. the spot their opponents, but they pulled it off so smoothly. Uh, and then Condry, you know, Schultz and Condry were great, and then I think 
Uh, obviously, Bobby Eaton was a better worker than David Schultz, and they just took it to another level. But we're, we are getting way ahead of ourselves. Uh, well, let he, me just do this. Before you do whatever you're going to do, let me just do this. Because if we talk about one thing on the show, this is all I want to talk about, and then I'll be happy. Because in my notes, I came across in this little <laughs> batch of videos that I was instructed to watch one of my all-time favorite angles that I forgot about. And it is my Memphis favorite, Jimmy Hart. And on the 5-9, May 9th, 1981 episode, it's the Bounty Hunters versus Coco and Gilbert. And um, you know how usually, like, Lawler or Dundee would come out there and they would demand their time. And they would get their time. Like, I uh, talk to I, him. He, you're going to bring he up wouldn't Jimmy want to. Right, right. You know where I'm going to go. This is one of the best effing angles ever. This is, I mean, and, and no one knows about it. That's why it's so great. It's not overplayed in everyone's mind. But well, it's classic Jimmy it's, Hart. Well, so, they, so Ken's out second. there. Wait, let me just, let me just, yeah. No, hang on a second. Really quickly, they do know about it if they follow me on my Facebook page because I posted a video about five weeks ago. But go ahead, Howard. Oh, that was well worth derailing <laughs> the train for. Thank you so much. Oh, that was awesome. This is really, <laughs> this has been really rolling along now. Thank you for that. Thank you. You were saying something. Okay, about... so where were we here? Let me no, just regroup. I... Oh, boy, not, oh boy. Re... Talk about cutting me off at the pass. You're not going to replay the and end. By the way, folks, by the way, folks, you think this folksy demeanor that Scott has on the air, like like uh, some long lost relative of Lance Russell, uh, you, you, it's all sandbaggery. He, <laughs> him and Lou talk for three and a half hours just trying to make me tired before the show starts. They, they rope-a-dope me every time. They're like, we're going to start at 9.30. It's like 3.30 in the morning now, Miami time. They don't care. They're talking about their drive on the 405. So what, did, what, what route did you take in? And I'm like chomping at the bit. Finally, when every last bit of energy is drained from me, they announce that they're going to start rolling tape. And I'm like, all right. Okay, so anyway. I digress, but this is one of the greatest angles of all time. So Jimmy Kent's out there demanding his own time. Usually when a Lawler or a Dundee is out there during a match, Lawler, they will, Lance will acquiesce, and he'd like, Dutch, this is not your time, but, and he'd be like, I don't care, and he'd grab the mic, and Lance would be forced to interview him. Well, in this case, Jim Kent comes out there, and he's like, you let everyone else make an interview, and Lance isn't having any of it. He waves Jim Kent off. He's like, well, I don't care about any of that. You're not scheduled, and you're not going to talk. And he doesn't, and he kicks Jim Kent out of the studio. So then Jimmy Hart's out there talking, and um, Kent comes back out. I'm like, oh, now I remember this. And I'm thinking, wow, they really jobbed Kent out in that opening segment, but I forgot he came back to make it an actual angle. So um, Kent comes out there, and he starts interrupting Jimmy Hart, who's already on a roll. And he goes, he goes, well, he goes, you know, you know, Jim Kent, you know your problem? I used to watch you when I was a child. I used to watch you and say, oh, that's Mr. Cool. That's Jimmy Kent, which I highly doubt. And he goes, but let me help you, Bubba. Let me tell you what your problem is. Turn around and show that red neck to the camera. I used to idolize you till I got to know you. Then he utters one of the funniest lines ever. He goes, man, you're slowly. He goes, man, you're slowly. You're just ignorant. You're stupid, man. And then Kent attacks Hart. Well, and, and, Lance and, has, and Lance actually has to defend Jimmy Hart. And he's like, don't hit him, Jimmy. Well, and the thing about it is, Jimmy Kent, it, it, dude, he sounds 
like the world's biggest redneck. I mean, there are people. Well, he's the- like the E.B. He's like the E.B. Farnham of professional wrestling. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's like a little bit like Ernest E. Bass, almost in a way. Uh, but yeah, See, and, uh, Jimmy so- Kent was the shits in Florida, but in, in Memphis he was tolerable because he was such a redneck. He fit with the local flavor. But he was uh, down here with the bounty hunters. And they sucked. I mean, it was it was no. We had a little Memphis crew here. They were working against Tommy Gilbert at the time, and you know they just. I wish they would have brought Eddie Marlin down with them. Hey, hey, hey! hey, No, that's somebody from Memphis I actually wanted to see. Don't you knock Eddie Marlin on my wall. First of all, my best wishes to that old fossil. Hey, full recovery. Oh my lord, have you no shame? The man may not even last the night, and here you are doing that. No, I understand. I'm giving a heartfelt, I'm giving a heartfelt <laughs> yeah. uh, Memphis salute yeah, to the man. A Jimmy heartfelt salute, maybe. Ah, perfect. You there know, you and, go. And, 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 and it all goes back to my first deal interview. Uh, when, I, when I said something about <laughs> Frank Morrell having a heart attack in the ring, I said, you know, because Frank's the only living person who's older than Eddie Marlin. And Eddie Marlin came up to me afterward. Everyone was like telling me, oh, great promo, great promo. And Eddie Marlin's like, Scott, can I talk to you for a second? And I was like, oh, my God, uh-oh. Because I'd seen Jimmy Hart do that for years, right? Like, oh, Eddie Marlin right. sleeping in the back. And he goes, uh, are we having a match Monday night? And I, I said, uh, no, sir. Oh, why did you promote one? And I went, I, I, I don't think I did. He goes, well, you're singling me out. Go calling me old. Going, the oldest person on earth. Well, uh, <laughs> and I told Jerry Jarrett that Jerry Jarrett started cracking up. He goes, he used to do that to Jimmy Hart all the time. <laughs> oh my God. That makes it all the funnier because one of my favorite things ever is him like accusing him of being asleep back there. Yeah. And then Eddie Marlin comes out looking like he was asleep back there. And Hart just berates him, calls him an old fossil. Those are some of the greatest Sanford and Son moments of all of Memphis wrestling when Jimmy Hart is insulting Eddie Marlin to his face. But let's put Eddie Marlin over for a second. Late in his career, let me just insert this. Since we really should talk about Eddie Marlin and truthfully wish him all the best, even though I was and Travis turned it into a hideous joke. But who remembers the boot camp match? I believe it had to be in 86 or 87. Not boot camp, but. They had their boots on. Well, I forgot what they called it in Memphis. It was like a Memphis Texas death match, and I remember. I uh, know, but it was Tommy. You'll you'll remember once I say it correctly. Tommy Gilbert and uh, Eddie Marlin, and they had like a bunkhouse match. Remember that? Wait a minute. What was no, it? Was it a bunkhouse match? Was it a Texas death match? Was it a was it a oh, boot camp like, match? Mr. Encyclopedia doesn't remember exactly what I'm talking about, leaving well, me to hang out and try. Right. And, and, for, and you also, but you also have to educate the people because. There's, yet you got to be thinking. Well, why would anybody want to see Tommy Gilbert and Eddie Marlin have a match in 1986 or 1988? Because of the history. Because those two were very close. Right. They, dude, I have a tremendous picture. Uh, and I'm sure people who are on my Facebook page, just like they saw the Jimmy Kent angle you referenced, uh, have have seen it, and it perfectly captures to me the difference between the fan experience of yesteryear and today you have Eddie Marlin and, and Tommy Gilbert fresh off of victory. They're, you know, just uh, sweaty. They're, they're tired looking, but they're, but they're smiling because, and dude, we're talking like a, just a mix of whites and black people, people and of all, you know, young and old huddled around them. And they're just sharing this joyous moment and all looking at the camera and waving. Yeah. And, Mike Shields took the photo 
and it is absolutely i don't know what it is i mean it it just captures the spirit of the time and they were probably in you know uh union city or it could have been jonesboro arkansas you know where these guys were the closest thing to tv celebrities that came through yeah man it's it it, it's it, it says so much about an era in one photograph yeah, I mean, you know, we don't necessarily need to deep dive on Eddie Marlin, and I don't think we could do him justice during this episode. I did want to give him a shout out during his times, and as of today, it looks like he's taken a turn for the better, although he kind of looked kind of fahogged in the video I saw. But, you know, for his age and circumstances, you know, yeah, yeah. what are you going to do? But certainly, my thoughts are with Eddie Marlin, a true Memphis classic and a legend. And he's one of those people that we should discuss at a later point because I want to deep dive on all these people that I might have met or been with, but I want to know more about, about them, yeah, your, buddy, your Buddy Waynes and your Eddie Marlin. So yeah, he's definitely yeah. one of those people that I want to take a big deep dive on. Yeah, and he, like he, you he, said, he, their feud worked so well because it was two old men by the time they had their, their death match or whatever. But I remember the classic <laughs> line that Lance said. He's like, and... Eddie's what's it? he's like Eddie's hitting him with that well I guess I don't remember the classic line but he's like he's gonna beat the stew out of him with those meat hooks <laughs> something like that something like that <laughs> and the thing is that's why it works so well because the Memphis fans DNA went back so far with the Marlins versus the Gilberts and yeah. their whole history that they built into that feud absolutely yeah, so it didn't know, just look like two old men. It looked like when your no, dad was no. going to fight a neighbor yeah. over a yeah. parking problem. Like, right. okay, they're old, right. but they're still right. going to kill yeah. each other, yeah. 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 and they're, they're yeah. going to take their shirts off, yeah. and they're yeah. going to fight in the middle of the street. And that's what that match was like. He needs to trim his shrubs, you know, and then it leads to some kind of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or he hasn't given and me Terry Funk by, comes out of a box. Yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't given me by, by power drill or whatever and a fight erupts <laughs> or something like that. Oh, man. And I remember they, they were going to have a back alley street brawl between those two. Holy cow. And only in Memphis. I, did anybody, did any other area, area have that kind of match? A back alley street brawl where, the, where it was, you know, you rip the clothes <laughs> off your opponent. You're, and Jimmy Hart, really, when he was involved in those, he ran to the back pretty much bare-ass naked. Literally naked. I saw the photos. Literally oh naked. Norman Lord. the Weasel Dooley took classic photos. Uh, Jimmy Hart, naked as a jaybird, having to walk back to the dressing room with nothing uh -oh. to cover himself up with but his hands. Yep. yep. Imagine that. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it's like in a building of people that hate you, no less. So it's like you can only imagine the pop that got. Well, and uh, I remember Tommy Gilbert was, you know, heel Tommy Gilbert was cutting the promo and he goes, he goes, can you imagine, can you imagine Dave Brown, Eddie Marlin, naked? <laughs> <laughs> and Dave just, it was almost like, you know, Dave's hard to crack up, but he got, Dave just kind of went, all right, and kind of turned away. But that was absolutely hilarious. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, and I think Lawler used that line too on on Jerry Jarrett. He goes, "We're gonna see what you look like naked, boy." <laughs> God, strange. I like when Lawler's uh, Southern terrible. comes out. By the way. Oh lordy, yeah. It seems like it it kind of it toned down a bit uh, when he came back from the broken leg, you know, because in '79 when he's cutting all those great heel promos, it's it almost added to the the sinister nature of it in a way. Uh, the, the southern, the diabolical southern accent. 
Uh, yeah, they, yeah. He, yeah. I think it added a, a a grit to him. Yeah, yeah. And it, well, you know, and, plus, and plus too, what what he got out of that too. Uh, you know, when he he was a heel, the first world title match I saw, and I've talked about this before, but just an incredible sixty minute Broadway with Nick Bockwinkle. And my gosh, you got the you got the trash talking, freshly turned heel king, uh, who is sounded so southern against classy Nick Bockwinkle coming in, and just the just you know the the differences in styles and 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 uh, uh, presentation and of how they walk to the ring. Bockwinkle just regally walks out, and then Lawler comes out on the on the throne for the first time with the jabronis carrying him, and then this uh. is too. It's you know Jim Cornette talked about uh, music entrances recently on the drive-through, and he was talking. He was there, and I was there the night that the uh, that the Freebirds came out, and then to, to the music and Lawler's and Dundee are just standing in the ring like a couple of jabronis waiting for them, and it really pissed Lawler off. And then three weeks later, you know, he's doing the throne entrance for the very first time with the lights off and the theme from Rocky playing. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, just just tremendous. Uh, Tremendous well, backstage know, stuff that leads to uh, wonderful stuff that fans well, got to see. One on cool camera. interview I saw. Sorry to cut you off there, but one cool interview I saw on the 516 show, and this is the last of my notes that I took from this match, but I wanted to work it in because when Lawler came back from his injury, he cuts one of those black curtain interviews for one of the smaller markets, and he was going to work. I didn't even write that down, but he's going to work somebody. He's like, I'm tickled that I'm hurt. I'm glad I hurt myself. And that was like the theme of his interview, you know? Yeah. That, like it that toughened was... him up. He's like, this is like, this is when I get excited. Cause yeah. he got beat up somewhere. He had like, he was all beat up in the face and stuff. I forgot what was leading up to that. Yeah, you know what? And you're right. Uh, that the, the, there's some words that Lawler used re- repeatedly. Uh, when he was happy, he said, I was pleased as punch tickled, tickled to death. <laughs> uh, great. Great is it was a, is it, which, you yeah. know, kind of like idiot, Donald Trump. idiot, like <laughs> yeah. this idiot, this <laughs> idiot over here. Uh, jabroni, he would pull out, you know, and it's so funny. You see on all these old Lawler clips that people find like <gasps> Lawler was using jabroni way before the rock. And I was like, Jesus. Uh, that term uh, has been around quite a long time. My friends. Uh, but anyway, back to speaking of tag matches uh, and getting back on point to the summer of 81. Uh, so let's take a look. So 5,500 for Lawler and Funk on May 25th. Reset button. Bloody Brawl in Louisville. That airs on Memphis TV on May 30th. June 1st, 1981. The house is up to over 7,000. Uh, this card also sees uh, Monumental. First appearance by Stan Lane, who was billed as the U.S. Junior Heavyweight Champion, and he loses to Bill Dundee. And this is one of those deals where Dundee takes a beating throughout the entire match. His finishing move relies on his heel opponent, throwing him into the turnbuckle, and he comes off with the flying press. And babyface hound referee Paul Morton counts the fastest three count you've ever seen in your life, awards Dundee the belt. Now, and they actually have they actually go to the trouble of having this this belt there. And I just thought this U.S. junior title business was baloney. At the time, I believed it because I was 10 years old. But looking back on it, I said, ah, that was some made-up deal. But that was actually a title in the continental area, in Alabama uh, and in Florida. And I, and Dundee actually went, I think, to Pensacola and dropped it back to Lane. 
Uh, which I I was stunned to, to find out. So this there was this was a, a legit title switch. Hmm. So there you go. Has, has recognized by no alliance in particular. And I always love uh, which which reminds me of some buzzwords for Jimmy Hart. He would always <laughs> he would always say he would when he'd be talking to Eddie Morley, he'd be going, "You and the Rasslet Alliance." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a classic. Oh, that's Sam a good Munchdick. one. I never Sam, thought I wouldn't have thought of that one. Sam Muchnick would probably uh, not be very happy. And I, I you know, oh, that's good. I, I just thought of something about Eddie Moreland, and I have to give my buddy Greg Fowler a uh, a shout out because he was uh, he was the one who gave me gave me the line. He goes, "Man, if you ever get into it with Eddie Moreland, you should you should, you should like kind of like just belittle him like you don't even know remember what his name is and call him Eddie Mackerel." <laughs> and the and the Tommy was right, and I got it in there, and I don't know why, but it was really funny, and it seemed to really anger Eddie Marlon that I got it <laughs> wrong. And I I will say this: I remember the moment that I stopped uh, belittling Eddie a little bit on TV, and it was and it was never dis. I mean, I didn't really mean it as any disrespect. I mean, I, I was just doing what I saw Jimmy Hart do, right? And Jimmy Hart right. was, was my idol growing up. And I just, I just didn't think, you know, I thought wrestlers all had tough skins. They could handle it. Uh, and really, Eddie Martin is one of the few who ever complained. But uh, I, what's his name? Charlie Laird was a jobber in, in 95 or 96. And this is when the time when the Moondogs were just beating the ever-loving hell out of everyone with chairs. And Laird came in, saw that he was going up against the Moondogs, turned around, started walking out. He goes, no, no way, man. No way. And Eddie Marlin, boy, Eddie Marlin popped the strap, man. He goes, Tony Laird! <laughs> he goes, Tony Laird, let me tell you something, boy. You walk out that door, you better not think about coming back or I'll kick your ass myself. And I went, shit. All right. Well, Eddie's still got some uh, some gas in the tank there. <laughs> note, to, note, note to self. I think that's when I started insulting Dave Brown a little bit more. <laughs> of course, Dave Brown. You know, actually came it, up with, with curse words. So uh, I was real popular. Oh, you, you seem to have that gift. Yeah. You're real natural. Yeah. If only if only I had that. A lot of you say, if only you had this much heat with the people, we'd get to draw some money. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, that's great. Gravy Train did roll on in Memphis. Uh, June 8th, 1981. The house is up to almost 8,000 people. Uh, which is pretty damn good. Kevin Sullivan, Wayne Ferris, and the Nightmares against Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, the Dream Machine, and Dutch Mantel in a no-DQ match. On the undercard, uh, very notable, Chick Donovan downs Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers is another one of those guys, you know, eventually became Johnny Rich and everything, and he's saddled <clears throat> with this corny uh, wrestling name as as Roy right. Rogers, but I guarantee you that Jerry Jarrett was working closely with him, saying, "Don't worry about <laughs> being unpolished," or because he did, he came off unpolished and nervous in his promos, but he had a lot of fire, and he got over in Memphis as like an underdog type. Uh, yeah, also, that is true. Also debuting on this show, we have Steve Kern beating Jim Dalton. Now. You know a lot about Sullivan and Kern from their Florida days. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, were they partners at any time or did they engage in any angles together in Florida or were they just working the territory around the same, around the same time period? 
Well, if you're talking the 70s, it's kind of like um, Kern broke in in 73, and I believe Mike Graham and Steve Kern, I mean, Mike Graham and Sullivan might have broken in a little earlier, and I think Graham and Sullivan teamed up in the early days, and Kern was more of a preliminary guy. And then um, yeah, Sullivan went to, high school went camp, to see. Yeah, yeah. It was like this one high school in Tampa that everybody went to. Hulk Hogan, Brian Blair, um, Orndorff. I don't know if Orndorff went to that high school or not, but he's close to that area anyway. And all those guys, all the Tampa guys, so Slater, Kern, Mike Graham, all went to school together, the same school. And um, so basically... As Kern matured, he began teaming with Mike Graham, and they became like the hometown guys right under Dusty. Like yeah. the second from Maine, it would be like your All-American boys, the white meat baby faces, Steve Kern and Mike Graham, and they were second to Dusty or Jack Briscoe at the time, depending on when it was in the 70s. And then um, by the time 1981 came around, and it comes to Steve Kern, he was kind of working, if I may be mistaken, but just from my general recollection, my impressions I get from remembering him at that time um, in the magazines and seeing him here, I don't think he was doing much, and he was kind of maybe on the undercard or middle well, undercard well, in Georgia and Florida. Yeah, yeah I think he was... Like, kind of like well, treading water as this white meat baby face, but he didn't... He wasn't quite the size that he would be a few years later. Well, well, whoa, whoa. he was Here, like all he was lean. Well, he now the train. I, I this is my personal observation from 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 looking at this time th period thing. Um, I believe that that the deal was made for Sullivan and Kern to kind of come in together because they had been feuding over the TV title, I believe. That, that which they actually had a TV championship in Georgia, Memphis. They just were fighting over air, really. Um, because Memphis never never made a trophy or a belt for the, for the damn thing. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the what the point of it was, but the, and that's when Kern started putting on some muscle. And the, I, I think rumor has it that Sullivan uh, got him on uh, some new supplements, so to speak. You know, you would you would have to because I swear to God, the way that I remember things the the most in my wrestling career is. If I took photos of it, it's burned into my mind forever. And I remember taking photos of Kern, mid-card, Florida, 81. He was really lean. He had like a David Lee Roth body at that point. And he, he, he was kind of in a middle – he was a transition period for him because he was really not – it was Florida, and he wasn't even doing anything interesting. And he was one of my favorites, and he wasn't really doing anything interesting. He's teaming with Mike Graham, and they were working like – I don't – I think Dory was booking in 81, and I really – it was guys like Bobby Jaggers and mm. uh, the Alabama Chain Gang, who was um, Jerry Brown from the Hollywood Blondes and another guy whose name I can never think of. But, you know, like the heel opposition in the tag team division was not tremendous at that point. And also in 81, your hotter baby faces were Sweet Brown Sugar and Hacksaw Reed teaming up. Right, and, and, and they were, well, and, let's, and they let's were way – Let's reiterate that they were that, way hotter. That Skip Young and not Coco Ware. Yeah, yeah, and they were way <laughs> hotter at the time and higher up in the card than Mike Graham and Steve Kern. And it seemed to me they were, that he was just treading water at that point. 
And then it wouldn't be long before in Memphis he became the fabulous one and really grew into what he really, you know, his full potential. Well, you know what? His first interview with, and it's, I guess it has to be around this time. I, I'm not sure if he debuted on the Saturday show. Probably. That's typically, the, I think, the way they, they would do things. Like, you get at least get to see him on TV first, especially in a guy like Kern's case, because, you know, at, at this point, he he's he's in great shape. You know, I, mm-hmm. I've seen I've seen some photos of Kurt. It's a tra- if he had looked like this, and I think I've said this before. If he had looked like this when Vince Senior was kind of looking at him and Backlund as you know the guys to be the All American boy as WWF champion in New York, Kurt might, might have gotten the nod because you know the backstory with having the father who was a real legit POW uh, right. uh, prisoner and and just. Uh, but at the time he didn't have that. He didn't quite have, he looked like he, he looked like he was a good athlete in shape, but he didn't have that same physique. Well, he didn't per- have the six pack. No, particularly at that time, because Kern went through, um, he had various cool looks on and off throughout the seventies around 1980. He got a really cool look going. He started wearing the black singlet. He grew a beard this is around the time he went to Japan and traded the belt with Fujinami, the junior heavyweight belt. I don't know if he wanted it or not, but he had some epic matches with him over there for New Japan. And he then in 1980, Kern had like one of some of the greatest matches I ever saw were him in Morocco. And Kern was on fire in 1980. That's when he really became one of my favorites. I always kind of liked him. And he showed signs of what I liked about him when he was teaming with Mike Graham. Like you always knew that he was the cool one. He was the David Cassidy of that particular Partridge family of when he teamed with Mike Graham, you know? Oh, the, Mike the time, Graham always, always, always Graham. on the cutting, uh, cutting edge of references. <laughs> well, who, would, who would even be? Like, I don't even know today's entertainment, for God's sakes. I defy you to tell me what top-rated show today. Nobody follows that shit. Entertainment is dead. We all know it. So and The show is living proof of that. <laughs> That's our new tagline. I didn't mean to um, put that out before the PR people got their hands on it. Entertainment is dead, folks, with Howard I, and Scott. Actually, and actually, I'm, I'm here to announce that uh, Arcadia Vanguard is starting yet another podcast, Howard Baum's Notes, where he just he just reads his notes. And, 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 <laughs> or tries yes. to decipher his notes. <laughs> Yes. Wait a minute. Is this, God forbid I show Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this, is this triple D? Excuse me if I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge burned into my retinas since the age of 10 years old of everything that happened in Memphis. I'm trying to catch up here, you know. Too funny. Too funny. Well, yeah, you did You did make a reference. You said you were going to start watching some old Memphis again. And, uh, and I said, yeah, that's, that's probably a good idea since you're on a Memphis wrestling podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's like 40 freaking years to cover. Give me a, how about you give me a time frame and we can start from there, you know? What do you want me to start in 1973? Well, like, you better hope we have a run until 2032 so I can catch up. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, and if the right things are going, that ain't going to happen. So, so I, I, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up because we can't Please, really. For um, all that is good and holy. Well, we, I mean, I, the, the seeds are planted. The lines are drawn, right? Clearly, uh, you've, clearly. You've got, you've got Lawler, Dundee, uh, the Dream Machine, Dutch Mantel. Steve Kern will also be mixed in here because the, the, the key way to get any newcomer over is to put them with Bill Dundee and they win the Southern Tag Team titles, right? And right. that's exactly that's exactly what happens here. Uh, Kern, Kern gets over from the start, but it's it's interesting that his 
because I, I just always remembered Kern, you know, coming in. And at this point, he, he was, dude, he was, he was ripped. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and he, you know, had, had really lightened his hair. And, yeah. and he this was fresh it. off of Florida, by the way. Let me excitedly interrupt you. This was fresh off of Florida because, like, I photographed him in Florida when I was just talking about him when he was all lean and lightened his hair. Then he went to Memphis. That was like the exact well, transition. Well, like, no, but I think he went. I, he went I think he had that. Look he went in, from I like. Think, I think he had. That, I think he had that look in Georgia first, though. Yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. then he briefly came back to Florida. Didn't do much of note, okay. and I was really disappointed. Um, but Florida had an up-and-coming Barry Windham, Magnum TA, Scott McGee was getting a push at that time. Top of the card was Sugar and Reed, like I said, of course, Dusty. Kern and Graham kind of were like middle of the card, white meat, not really doing anything at that I, time. I just wonder if that relationship with Jarrett and Graham, you know, had something to do with Kern coming because, you know, uh, that's how Jarrett got Paul Orndorff to come over. And, you know, and Jarrett had points in the Florida office. Um not not a lot, but but yeah, yeah, he, he well, had some he had some pull there. Let me add this, and I'll we'll, I'll remember to we'll put this video up on the thing because there's an early video of Steve Kern in Memphis before he becomes anointed as a fabulous one. And as Tyree Pride said, there is more wrestling in a Steve Kern squash than you're going to see in a card of matches. And there's this highlight video put together in classic. I think they were using Memphis footage, but it was AWA chose the music, so it was like polka from 1952. <laughs> and it was like, dung, dung, dung. But Kern is like doing all this shit, all this amazing chain wrestling and his patented forearm smash and all his patented reversals and chain wrestling and all this stuff. So I'm going to find that video and we'll post it for you people because that's classic. It, like Tyree said, if you want to see some wrestling, look at Steve Kern. Well, that guy was a wrestling machine like, yeah. from the day I laid eyes on him. Yeah, and then you know when he when he when he when he when he got the when he got the body going working up working out let's say with Kevin Sullivan, uh, those two were in the best shape of their lives and and uh, Kurt you know and Kurt was also you know incredible shape when he was part of the fabulous ones but he, but he, I don't know he was just leaner he looked tougher and I remembered him always being like uh, not really a screamer but just uh, just looking right into the camera and yeah. And just being a straight shooter, which is very effective. Yeah. You know, not everybody has to well, be he, polished and everything. Cool but but, it, but but hang on a second. But his first interview in Memphis, it was borderline disaster. And I can only imagine. I, I think they had a talk with him. You know, afterward, because he 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 comes out and he kind of laughs and he goes, "Well, that's uh, truthfully, I'm kind of embarrassed uh, to speak on in front of the camera." And I mean, oh my gosh! And from then on. I, I, the, I, they must have had a talk with him. Uh, it was, wow. it, it, but in another way, it was almost endearing because I don't think I'd ever seen a <laughs> baby face who they had plans for come out and say that kind of thing because so much of wow. what was centered around Memphis was the promo. Um, yeah, totally. And it was sort of an all shucks kind of thing. Uh, in, in a weird way, it probably endeared him to some of, some of the women, but I'm sure guys were like, well, what the fuck is this? You know, this guy. Yeah, <laughs> this guy, yeah. This, this guy's scared to death. But from then on, I think I think Jarrett just said, you know what? Channel that nervous energy. And I'm, I'm just, and this is just from based on hours of talking with Jerry Jarrett on how he got the best out of guys when it came to promos. It was always like, you know what? Channel that nervous energy in a different way, and just slow down and look right at the camera, and yeah. and just believe in what you're saying, and try not to rehearse. You know, just let it come from the heart. And right, he, he quickly. 
picked up on that Memphis style. And dude, by the time he became one of the fab, the, the, the big turning point for him, which we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but this is a big turning point in the gang war. You know, Kern is on a winning streak. He's a newcomer. Whose side is he on? And Jimmy Hart has that offer for him to join the first family. Oh, yeah. More and, classic angles coming up. Yes. Totally. Yes. So we'll uh, we'll end right there. But uh, that that scenario turns into a nightmare for Jimmy Hart. But dream matches are ahead and dream box office is ahead for Jerry Jarrett and his crew as the summer of 81 heats up. We will be back next week to discuss more of one of the hottest summers in Memphis history. For Howard Bound, this is Scott Bowden. We'll be right back after this message. Okay, no more to be said. Louisville Gardens, Louisville, Kentucky. Hey, let's just take a look at the action as it happened, David. Thank you. 
action. Billy's trying to fight Bo Sullivan and Ferris. Got caught from behind. There he doubles him off. And both Ferris and Dundee are down. Wayne, first one up. Dundee, the dream, 
What a brawl. The referee powerless to stop anything. Too much of it happening. Hart with a handful of powder throws it to Greenspace. Now it's Dundee's eyes. It all over again. Watching it. Yeah. <laughs> what a brawl that was, man! Is right. Woo! I gotta tell you that was something else. We thought everybody was gonna kick out of oh, yeah. it. It was wild and woolly, and I'm glad I was up where I was at. We got more action, and we're gonna be back to it in just a moment. Welcome back to the KFR podcast. And gosh, it still gives me chills hearing the late great Lance Russell call the action as all hell breaks loose at the gardens. It just doesn't get any better than that, my friends. 
or does it? Uh, you can find out next episode as the heat index hits record highs by any standards held by Dave Brown in the summer of 81. A violent yet inspirational period of my childhood that proved to me that dreams, or at least dream machines and dream matches, really do come true. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter at Trav Scott Bowden and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling where I will be making an extra crispy announcement this week about the return of KentuckyFriedWrestling.com, the online magazine of Memphis Wrestling. You can also follow Brian on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. And if anyone out there knows of the Golden Boy's whereabouts online, let him know that I still care and that I'm thinking about him, just not as often as Brian alleges. Also, on a more serious note, I do want Eddie Marlin to know that a lot of us are indeed thinking about him. The longtime promoter on championship wrestling has been in and out of the hospital of late, and this episode is dedicated to Eddie as he continues to fight the good fight. Hang in there, Eddie. I uh, just wanted to remind you that KFR is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For Brian Last and Howard Baum, this is Scott Bowden. We will see you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling. <laughs>